I invite you to turn with me in the book of praise to page 558. 558, where we'll be dealing with the 10th commandment of God's law. That 10th commandment reads, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In Lord's Day 44, we ask, what does the 10th commandment require of us that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep those command these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may become, we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. So far, our Heidelberg Catechism, summarizing the teachings of Scripture. In response to the preaching, we'll sing Psalm 40, the stanzas 3 and 4. That psalm was quoted by the writer to the Hebrews in the passage we read, Hebrews 10. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are, I think, fairly familiar, most of us, with the 10th commandment, the wording of it, you shall not covet, and then there's a list of things, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, land, servants, animals, etc., anything that belongs to your neighbor. And generally speaking, I suppose we, we know what this means we must not desire for ourselves those things which belong to our neighbor. But let's for a moment step back and compare this final commandment with the other five neighbor commandments, starting with the fifth commandment, honoring our parents, not killing our neighbor, not committing adultery, not stealing, not bearing false witness against our neighbor. If you think about those other five, those earlier five, all of those involve an outward action. If you were to break any of those commands from number five to number nine, it would be quick to see its effects would be felt by your neighbor. But it's quite different with this 10th commandment, isn't it? I mean, you could covet your neighbor's spouse 
and nobody might ever know. You could secretly desire your neighbor's wealth, maybe for years at a time, and, and nobody would be the wiser. Coveting is exclusively a matter of the heart. And God forbids us in this last commandment to even secretly desire those things which belong to our neighbor. No fantasies about another person's stuff are allowed. No what-if dreams when it comes to what God has given to somebody else. And even though no human being may tell what thoughts we're thinking or what desires we're contemplating, God sees them all perfectly. He knows our hearts, and He will hold us to account. And if God flipped open your heart or mine at this moment so that everyone could read your thoughts right now, everyone could see the secret desires of your heart right now, what would people see? I think we shudder to think of that happening. You see, it's with this final commandment, more than any other, that we realize just how much we need the Savior Jesus. For it becomes clear just how much sin is in our hearts, just how much sin is in fact part of our nature. The only way out of, of sin is to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and renewal, and to learn to desire, learn from Him to desire what He desires. And so I bring you this word of the Lord. Follow Jesus and say, O God, to do Your will is my desire. O God, to do Your will is my desire. We'll look at desires which destroy and desires which benefit. The Catechism gets at this underlying issue in the Tenth Commandment when it focuses on desire in answer 113, that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. It's referring there to evil desires. There certainly are godly desires. The Catechism speaks here of delighting in all righteousness and in answer 115 of striving toward obeying all of these commandments, striving to be renewed more and more after the image of God. That, that requires desire, pursuit. So there are definitely good things we should want and good things we should pursue. We'll come back to those in a few moments. But First, let's be clear that these evil desires are banned, and these evil desires, they have the power to destroy. It's important to remember that this Tenth Commandment has our neighbor in mind. I am not to covet my neighbor's house or wife, servants, animals, whatever. What God gives to my neighbor belongs to him or her to hold, to love, to employ, to make use of whatever is appropriate for the thing we're talking about. And whatever is that person's, I may not desire to have it for myself. 
This commandment, by the way, this 10th commandment shows that God grants individuals the right to hold property and possessions. And like we saw this morning, there is no call in Scripture for a communion of goods. I must love my neighbor as myself, and that means I must respect what God has given to my neighbor. I must not wish him or her ill or wish what they have for myself. In fact, I should be happy that God has so richly supplied my neighbor with those, that variety of blessings. Thing is, the natural sinner in me doesn't find that easy to do. One of the reasons God forbids desiring what is my neighbor's is because of where those desires can quickly lead. A lot of people don't believe in this slippery slope idea, but when it comes to covetous desire, the Bible is very clear that there is a slippery slope, that such a desire is heading somewhere, it's leading somewhere, it's leading to hurt and even to the destroying of my neighbor if we don't pull back and rein in that desire. We have to constantly check those evil desires of our hearts so they don't do further damage. As Paul says in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Our flesh, our human nature, has this instinct to gratify its natural evil desires. And we have to fight against that. There's a good or, or, or a large part of us that wants to, to slide down that muddy, slippery slope of desire. We want to slide right down it and into a full-blown sin. Just as James writes in chapter 1 of his letter, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives forth death. Gratifying our evil desires leads to destruction. The Bible has a number of examples. You can think of Eve, our first mother. Eve's desire for the forbidden fruit, it brought death to her and to Adam and, in fact, all the human race. You can think of Achan's desire. Remember Achan? Heading in, as the Israelites headed into the promised land, and they took the city of Jericho. All the booty in the city of Jericho was dedicated to the Lord. No one was to grab from it, but Achan coveted certain things, and he grabbed those certain, certain things, and he hid them in his tent. What did that lead to? It led to the death of many Israelites who didn't know about it in a subsequent battle. It also led to the death of Achan and his own family. Then there's David's lustful desire to have Bathsheba. That not only led to her being defiled, it also led to the death of her noble husband Uriah and later to the death of David's own son. Ahab's coveting of the field of Naboth that led to Naboth's murder. Remember how he and Jezebel conspired to set Naboth up? The jealous desire of the chief priests and the Pharisees that led to... to they wanted to be rid of Jesus, so that led them to crucifying Him. The evil desire of the heart 
so often covets what belongs to our neighbor, and it doesn't take much for actions to spring forth from our desire and for lives to be wrecked. Even among believers today, do we not see it? Where envy leads to harming another person, where lust leads to the commission of adultery, where greed leads to theft, where bitterness leads to gossip and slander, and people are ruined. People are broken. These desires and their outworking, their consequences, are the very opposite of that, that overarching summary of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. When we let the evil desires live there and, and then act on them, both those things, we are not loving our neighbor. And it turns out we're also not loving ourselves. For these evil desires, they do destroy others, but they also have a destructive effect on ourselves, don't they? Listen to this proverb from the book of Proverbs against lust. Solomon writes, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. He's talking about a, a woman that is about that wants to commit adultery. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. A married woman. So this man, this young man, is thinking of having sex with a, with a married woman. And the, the wise Solomon says, a, a married woman hunts down a precious life. What does he mean? Young man, you might have sex with that married woman. You might have momentary pleasure, but woe unto you when the jealous husband catches up with you. That husband will have his revenge. So the destruction falls back into the sinner's own lap. And yet it's even worse than that. It goes deeper. We cannot have in our hearts evil desires without being negatively affected by them ourselves. If we plot against our neighbor in some way, if we harbor these desires, if we conspire to do her or him harm, even if we just fantasize on it and never act on it, those desires, they sit in our hearts. They fester there. They, they boil there, and they corrupt us. If we allow them to remain there, they will come to dominate us and they will actually undo, they will ruin us. Isn't that what happened to David? David's covetous desire destroyed his neighbor, definitely, but it also destroyed him. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, it would have completely destroyed him. Think of what David's sin, sin of his heart, did to him. For the better part of a year, he refused to repent. He had to live then with his unconfessed sin, his unforgiven sin. He, he lived with that guilt. He had to live with his own secret transgressions weighing down on his heart, refusing to admit it to God or to anybody. He just kept on going as king. He kept on going with his routines in the temple, going to worship as he would have, pretending nothing happened, pretending everything was above board. 
You know, on a human level, if anybody could have done it, it would have been David. He was king. He was top dog. Nobody would question him. Nobody could hold him accountable. He was free to do whatever he wanted to do. But it turns out the very thing he wanted actually had turned around and enslaved him. With guilt, the thing that he wanted, the thing that he desired, it had made his life a miserable torment, a living hell. He describes it for us in Psalm 32, and I quote, For when I kept silent about my sin, he's referring to, my bones wasted away all day through my groaning. For day and night your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. My bones wasted away. He, he, was, he was physically deteriorating during those nine plus months. In his suffering, David was worse off than Uriah. You know, dead Uriah was better off because he was with the Lord. Living David, living David was alone with himself because God wasn't in his life except for the wrath of God upon him. He was burdened with God's guilt. He was having a miserable time. Would you want to live like that? Uriah was free. David was enslaved. Isn't that what we experience, that kind of thing? When we allow those evil desires to percolate in our hearts, those desires against our neighbor, when we envy somebody else, whatever it might be that we envy about them, does that make our heart feel good? Does it make our heart feel light and happy? Envy makes us surly and grumpy, to say the least. When we have bitterness towards somebody else, does that bring us joy? Are we more joyful people when we have bitterness in our hearts? No. We develop a very sharp edge in our unhappiness. We become the kind of people that other people have to tiptoe around like they're walking on eggshells because they don't want us to snap at them. We're bitter. If we lust after someone who belongs to somebody else, does that give us a cheerful disposition? It makes us miserable, tears us up inside. If I let greed for my neighbor's wealth fester in my heart, will that make me content and easy to get along with? I'm likely to be more like Ahab, who felt sorry for himself and became resentful. Our evil desires, they're not only a danger to others, they're a danger to ourselves, to our own souls. So brothers and sisters, recognize what's going on in your heart and, and flush that out of your heart. Flee from those desires. Don't let them thrive there. Even if your life looks good as far as the other nine commandments are concerned, if you think that, you think, well, you know what? One to nine, I'm doing pretty good. I've, I've got those covered. But number 10 comes along and exposes what's going on in your heart. And you have desires, evil desires, that you are letting thrive in your heart, then understand your life is already forfeit, for God judges our hearts. 
The only thing to be done is to abandon those wicked desires, give them up in repentance, and cling to the only Savior, Jesus, who not only gave His life to cover your guilt and mine against the Tenth Commandment, but He also thoroughly obeyed the Tenth Commandment to a T. Our hope lies in both those things. Our catechism points us in that direction. In answer 115, the question there is, if in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why have them preached? Why does God have them preached so strictly? And then the answer is, first, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Every week, we hear God confront us with His law, right? Every Sunday morning. To create in us and to keep in us alive an awareness of the sin that still lives in us, an awareness of the sin for which we need forgiveness, from which we need cleansing, and on a regular basis, we delve into the preaching of God's law for the same purpose so that having our sin exposed, we run to the Savior. We run to His cross, to His suffering and death, yes. But we also run to His righteousness that the Catechism mentions. What's that mean? It means we run and we, we, we grab hold of, we embrace the obedience to the law which Jesus rendered on our behalf. There's always those two things, the sacrificial death of Jesus, that is credited to our account for the forgiveness of all our sins, but in just the same way, the whole life that Jesus lived, the whole life of obedience that Jesus rendered is also credited to your account and mine so that God the Father now regards us as having actually kept every commandment including the tenth, because we are in Jesus who actually kept the tenth commandment. We read about that in Hebrews 10. Maybe you want to turn there for a moment. Hebrews 10, page 1282. The author speaks here about the purpose for which Christ came into the world. And to do that, in verse 5, he quotes from Psalm 40. This is what he says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Notice how the author quotes the words of David as if they are the words of Jesus. Let's start with that. That underlines for us that David's words in the book of Psalms are in fact Christ's words. So when we sing the Psalms, when we read the Psalms, we are singing or reading Jesus' words, words that he inspired David through his spirit. He inspired David to write those words about himself. So these are words about Jesus. And at first it sounds like an odd thing to say, 
even a contrary thing for David or for Christ to say that sacrifices and offerings God has not desired. I mean, didn't God desire them? Didn't God uh, command of, through Moses that the Israelites should bring sacrifices and offerings? Well, yes, He did. But He commanded, God commanded those offerings in response to God's rebellion, right? It was a necessary response to the rebellion, to man's sin. And sin is definitely not something that God desires. What is sin? To sin is to go against God's will. So if we just back up in history to the Garden of Eden, if man had never sinned, if man had only loved God and obeyed Him from his heart and done His will, there would have been no sin and there would have been no need for sacrifices. And that is God's deepest desire, that His people not sin, that His people commit themselves to doing His will. Jesus, God didn't really want to have to introduce sacrifices. That was a necessary thing because of sin. And Jesus is the one who did the will of God perfectly. To say it as we're going to sing from Psalm 40 in just a few minutes, Jesus came into the world saying, Oh God, to do your will is my desire. Can you hear the 10th commandment in that cry of his heart? To do your will is my desire. The only way to obey the 10th commandment, the only way to defeat every evil desire is to give yourself entirely over to what God desires. And this Jesus did as our representative. He is the last Adam, and He came to earth in our place to live life for us perfectly. He never let one slight thought cross His mind that was contrary to any of God's commandments. He never allowed one desire to crop up in His heart that was unloving toward His neighbor or unloving toward His God. As a human being, Jesus was fully dedicated, 100% devoted to giving God the love of His heart all day, every day. And because He is also the Son of God, Jesus not only wanted to do God's will, He not only desired to do God's will, He actually did it spotlessly, completely. And that is where our salvation lies. That is where the joy and, and, and song of life is for us. Hebrews 10 verse 11 says it and draws out the consequences. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He came to do God's will. A big part of God's will, in particular for Jesus, included offering a life of complete obedience to the law, plus giving His life as a sacrifice for sin. That was God's will for the Messiah, and the Messiah did that perfectly. And verse 14 declares... By a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when you put your trust in this Jesus, you, brothers and sisters, you are perfected 
in the eyes of God by means of Jesus' sacrifice and righteousness. Isn't that incredibly good news? I mean, you think of all the sins we've got. We think, just think of all those sins of the heart we talked about a few moments ago. Who doesn't have those, those desires, those evil desires floating up and cropping up in our hearts and, th- and minds so frequently, all covered, all paid for by Jesus in Jesus. It's a gift. You don't have to perfect yourself. You don't have to earn salvation in any way. You don't have to pay for it. It's given to you free. Jesus obeyed all ten commandments to the full for you, and then he laid down his life for you and me. That has consequences, lots of beautiful consequences. Now, when I hear the Ten Commandments, Sunday mornings or at other times, I no longer am am weighted down by my guilt as if I can't shake the guilt. For as I become aware of my sins over the last six or seven days, I run to my Savior in faith. In my mind, I run to my Savior, and He washes me in His blood, and my guilt disappears as soon as it comes to view, and the law no longer counts against me. Isn't that tremendous relief? And still there's more to this benefit that Christ brings. Look at what God does in this new covenant, Hebrews 10, that He's made with us in the blood of His Son. Verse 16 says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The laws of God, the law of God, those ten permanent commandments which God once with his finger etched into stone, right? The Scriptures are saying the Holy Spirit now, the Holy Spirit of Christ comes to us and he etches them in the tablet of your heart and mine. So having set us free from guilt in the blood of Jesus, the guilt of disobeying the law, the guilt of violating the will of God, God now expands our freedom by stamping His law on our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, and He enables us so that we can begin, and we in fact do begin to obey the law of God. We do begin to obey His will. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We talked about that this morning. So now we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus and we can say, as Jesus said, Oh God, to do Your will is my desire. Brothers and sisters, in the Spirit of Christ, this is now the cry of your heart and mine. This is the desire the Tenth Commandment wants to have evoked within us. Not the covetous desire, but the desire to do God's will and God's alone. And this desire is is one which never destroys either a neighbor or ourselves. It always brings benefits. Verse 24 of 
Hebrews 10 mentions a few benefits, benefits for our neighbor. The writer says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stirring up one another to love and good deeds, diligently meeting together, says the author. That sounds very much like an Acts 2 scenario, doesn't it? Loving our neighbor means looking out for his or her good. It means acting for their good as much as we can. Far from coveting what they want, we're looking out for their best interest. The author mentions more. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Remember the Author to the Hebrews is writing to people, Christians who've been persecuted for their faith. So sometimes you stood with them. Then he goes on, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The very opposite of those evil desires, the opposite of, of being envious or greedy or lustful or bitter toward your neighbor is to stand with your neighbor when they are maligned, for example, in the press. It's to identify with your neighbor when the crowds are spouting hate just because they are Christian or stand up for Christian causes. It's to support your neighbor and encourage them when they suffer for the name of Christ. Instead of selfishly looking for ways to increase my wealth and security and comfort by the covetous desires of my heart. It's the opposite. I joyfully accept plundering of my property, says the writer. I joyfully accept that others come in and steal my stuff because I'm a Christian. That's where we need to be in our minds. Can we get there in the the thinking of our hearts. Can we align ourselves with this will of God? We can. And we will. If we run to Jesus and exclaim with Him by His Spirit, O oh God, to do Your will is my desire. I want to do Your will. Help me with that, O oh God. Lord Jesus, take my heart and mold it so that it can be a heart like yours, a heart that was willing to sacrifice for me, a heart that was willing to sacrifice for your brothers and sisters, a heart that is singularly devoted to my Father's will. Take my heart and mold it, O Lord. That needs to be the prayer of our heart. Amen.